Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ahoy, ahoy, and welcome to another episode of Patented, a podcast all about the history of inventions and technology brought to you by History Hits. I'm your host, Dallas Campbell. Thank you very much for your company. Hey, listen, we're going to do something a little bit different today and for the next few episodes. We're going to do another mini-series. And this mini-series is all about the theme of evil inventors. Or should that be evil inventors with a question mark? Because in this little series, a guest and myself are going to be looking at the life and work of prominent inventors in history and asking the question, were they bad? Were they evil geniuses? Or were they simply misunderstood? Were they, I don't know, complicated? Well, today I'm joined by the author Dan Charles to discuss the life and work of renowned scientist Fritz Haber, a name you may be familiar with. He was Jewish-born, became a German patriot. He was very good friends with Einstein. He won the Nobel Prize for Chemistry in 1918 for his invention of the Haber-Bosch process, which you may be familiar with. This is the process that led to the synthesis of fertilizers, which helped feed the German population during the war and, of course, went on to revolutionise agriculture globally, of course, saving countless lives. But... His work also led him to develop poisonous gases and essentially gave birth to the idea of chemical warfare, including research which led to the development of Zyklon B, which was used by the Nazis to murder millions in the death camps. So this is where his legacy becomes murky. Was Fritz Haber an evil inventor? How should we remember him? A quick disclaimer, this episode discusses topics of suicide, self-harm, and if this is unsettling for you, you might want to give this one a miss. Dan, welcome to the show. Nice to be here. Lovely to have you here. Hey, I don't know why it's taken us so long to do Fritz Haber on this on this show. I mean, crikey, a towering figure in 20th century science. A complex story as well. It's difficult because on one hand, this great saviour, you know, what he did with the... Harbour Bosch process, nitrogen fixing, fertiliser, and then, of course, then we have to descend into the murky world of the First World War and chemical weapons. And let's start a little bit of an introduction to Fritz Haber, who he was. Fritz Haber. Um, you kind of pause even before you start because it is such a massive story. 
It is, and takes so many twists and turns. I know, and it's quite difficult just to kind of launch in. It's like, where do you start on this one? It's, it's, so, it's so massive. There's no, like, straight-line story, and you immediately want to start, like, psychoanalyzing the guy. You know, like, why? Exactly. I, that's the thing. There's a, a quotation, I think, and I can't remember. Maybe I heard you say it, actually, once, about the nature of technology being like fire in children's hands. That's a quote from him. It's kind of, that sort of reverberates today as we talk about things like AI. The morality like tale. The morality, you know, and, and in, in, invention and innovation and morality. On one hand, it giveth, and on the other hand, it taketh away. But let's start at the very beginning. So Fritz Haber, you could call him a child of the German Empire, late 19th century, born, you know, in the year years immediately preceding German unification, you know, from the German point of view, the great victory over the French. Jewish, grew up in a, a very Jewish household in the then German city of Breslau, now Wrocław in Poland. Grew up, you know, as part of a generation, a Jewish generation that for the first time could really fully participate. At least they felt that way. His generation did fully participate in German civic life. He could become an academic there was a, you know, sort of a break with his father over some of his ambitions. They didn't get on very well. They had a, a relationship that was formative, perhaps, the relationship with his father. It, was, it certainly seemed tricky, difficult. Seemed like they didn't get along very well. There's never been a sort of a full account of exactly what they fought over. You could easily sort of see them as two generations and also two different worldviews. Uh, mm -hmm. His father was very deeply rooted in the Jewish community and in his town of Breslau and in his trade, uh, which was sort of textiles and mm -hmm. dyeing textiles and so forth. And Fritz grew up, you know, with big ambitions. He was kind of your classic restless young man you know, out to kind of make his fortune. And they clashed perhaps over just that, perhaps over attitudes. Fritz, for a brief time, tried to work in the family business and um, seems like it didn't go well. He left to pursue his academic career. We know him as a chemist. Where did this love of science come from or this interest in science? Do we have an idea where that stemmed from? Um, he certainly latched on to it early. It was a time of great ferment. So for an ambitious young man of that time, I think all the innovations that were happening in the late 19th century, sort of technological and scientific, yeah. you know, you could easily see that as a natural path for him to pursue. Thing is, you know, he didn't, he was not uh, immediately recognized as a genius, certainly in the halls of academia in the universities where he studied, he found himself often bored, sometimes frustrated, bounced from one university to another. But he was not, you know, like in those early years of studying, apparently destined for greatness. That was, mm -hmm. you know, he didn't make a great mark for himself in the university. But he was certainly a hard worker. But you mentioned the sort of scientific things that were of that era, of that era. I mean, certainly... The beginning of the 20th century, you had this great explosion in, in new thoughts of physics. And was he aware of all that or was he, did he sort of proceed, you know, well, I suppose Einstein was a bit, uh, relativity and such, Einstein was a little bit later. But was he aware of this, these new ideas that were sprouting up? 
Oh, I'm sure he was. Although, you know, in the time when he was growing up, I think the cutting edge was more chemistry than physics. You know, the whole kind of quantum physics and relativity and all that was kind of still in the future. Still to come, yeah. That was something that he kind of participated in as an observer, but very close to these kind of giants of early physics um, in Germany in the early 20th century. You know, it, it is kind of natural for an ambitious German scientist of the late 19th century to gravitate into chemistry, because this was the time of the emergence of the the great German chemical conglomerates, the BASF, uh, which was yes. became one of his close collaborators. And like, why Germany? Like, what did, why did Germany become the sort of center of chemistry? Yeah, that's yeah, that's a that's a question that I don't know if I can answer. It's for the, for the historians of science to answer. But it emerged to some extent out of the dye industry, and then kind of combining different chemicals and sort of figuring out what you can do. And an industrial empires emerged mm. uh, out of out of that industry. So we got a little bit of context about who he was and when he was, but let's move on to what was the problem, the great dilemma of which Fritz Haber became famous for? Well, this dilemma is the impending shortage of nitrogen. And people think, nitrogen, what's nitrogen? Nitrogen is kind of the foundational and most important nutrient for plant life on Earth. This was kind of brought to a head by a famous speech in 1898, <laughs> a guy named William Crookes gave a speech in Britain to a big gathering of scientists, and he basically said, mankind, humankind, depends on a supply of nitrogen to grow the food that it needs to survive. And he cast it as sort of an interesting term as sort of the fate of the bread-eating nations. <laughs> but basically, very simply, nitrogen is the most important nutrient for growing food. Growing human population, limited amount of land meant that there was an, a, a shortage of this fertilizer that would be needed. Right. And already... They were importing quantities of uh, bird guano from South America and then nitrate, which was mined uh, from a high plains in Chile. And uh, William Crook said, basically, if we can't infinitely increase the supply of nitrogen to feed our fields, we're going to face impending food shortages. And it really did grab the attention of a lot of people, how to get more nitrogen to increase the supply of food to feed a growing world population. When I think of big population growth, I don't think of it in, in terms of that particular era. Where was the, sort of the big centers of population? Where were they growing? Well, he was thinking mostly of Europe. Um, right. But certainly, you know, he was also thinking globally. But this was not, you know, this was not an immediate problem, honestly. It was something that he was kind of looking into right. the future and yeah. saying, we will face these limits. And there is a limited supply of this essential fertilizer. How can we get more? Well, nitrogen is in the air all around us, but it's in a, it's yeah. in a form that plants can't use. You know, nitrogen, these double tightly linked atoms of nitrogen in the air, if we could somehow like split these 
N2 molecules, these double atoms of nitrogen, and capture that nitrogen in a form uh, that plants can use as, as food, that would be the solution. That would be the great innovation which would sort of ensure the survival of the human species on Earth. Here's a stupid question. Plants were growing without man-made fertilizers. So, I mean, plants need potassium and they need phosphorus and they need nitrogen. Are there naturally nitrates everywhere? And you just need more of them in order to boost yields. Right. You know, nitrogen, organic nitrogen is in the soil and it's constantly recycled as, you know, sort of plants die and decompose in the soil. But in agricultural systems, they're artificial and you're sort of, you need to boost the, the production from these fields and then you take it away. It's extractive. Already in the 19th century, people understood that you need to feed the soil. You need to bring in more fertilizer. And right. in specifically, you need to bring in more sources of nitrogen. That's why you know they were already importing large quantities of uh, nitrogen fertilizer from places like Latin America. Where did the sort of the spark of genius, like, I know how we can get all that nitrogen from the atmosphere... Or, well, most of the 70% of our atmosphere is nitrogen and get it into the ground. How did that happen? So how'd they do it? Yeah, this is one of those interesting stories when you, you know, because people have this idea of sort of like the intellectual spark, right? The eureka yeah. moment. And Haber's story of innovation and what was and what we now call nitrogen fixation, you know, the, 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 the capturing of nitrogen from the air and in a form that then you can sort of use... That was more, the problem was there and people were thinking about it and imagining how would it work. The solution was not so much, you know, like this flash of inspiration. It was a triumph of organization and, right. and, and really hard work. And, and Haber, that I think is actually why Haber ended up being the one to do it. Because he was an organizer. And he, he, he was able to sort of bring together these worlds of sort of the industrial and the intellectual and the engineering side of it. So, so where was he? So he's at, his, at a university and this problem has come to him. He understands the, the problem. Right. And he says, right. So he had, do this. He, he had latched, he had sort of climbed, he had grabbed the bottom rung of the academic ladder <laughs> as a kind of... <laughs> low-ranking assistant professor at the University of Karlsruhe, Mm. which happened to be right down the road from BASF, a big chemical company, Mm. which was interested in this problem, and they had resources. So Haber got sponsorship from this company to work on the problem. Mm. He also had a... And and the, the approach they took, which several people sort of had thought of doing, was basically... You, you have your nitrogen in the air, in the N2, you know, these, these tightly linked atoms of, of nitrogen. You bring the nitrogen together with hydrogen and under great heat and pressure and hope that that N2 splits apart and the nitrogen atoms glom onto, sort of link up with the hydrogen to form NH3 or ammonia. Uh, it doesn't happen naturally, but maybe they thought if they put it under sort of great heat and pressure, and maybe it took a catalyst, some other element there in, in that space, which would kind of like help make this chemical reaction mm. happen. 
So they just tried it. They, you know, sort of built this apparatus and, and they brought in different catalysts. As it turned out, this was pure happenstance. Haber had access to some osmium because of a different sort of collaboration he was doing. He tried that. They had this well-constructed apparatus to try it. And then one day <laughs> in 1909, they ran the experiment and drops of ammonia came out. And it worked. But it's so weird. It's like, oh, I just happened to have some osmium. And osmium is an expensive metal to start with. It's not something you kind of have lying around. It's an odd thing to yeah. sort of come up with. That's where the serendipity comes in. Which day was it? There was a day... I don't have the date actually right in front of me. <laughs> a... It was in 1909, yes. One day, they ran this experiment and drops of ammonia came out. And they do remember that. You know, that was a specific moment when they realized this yeah. reaction can happen under these circumstances. Just explain the significance of that and just how, just why it was so important and the effect it had on, well, on the entire planet, really. They had an expression for it. I don't know if it was written in a headline, but Brot aus Luft, bread from the air. <laughs> this was the promise of limitless nitrogen, a limitless supply of the essential fertilizer for growing food. It clearly caught the attention of a lot of people, and it was a momentous thing because, yeah. I mean, today... It is a pillar of life on Earth. This process, yeah. the same process, the same chemical reaction uh, is used on a massive, massive scale. It is what makes possible intensive food production across the world. It's funny, bread from air. It's almost like alchemy. It's almost like the old alchemist trying to create gold from lead. The idea that you can create yeah. bread from fresh air. It's kind of it's almost quite biblical as well as, you know, just like magically spontaneous producing loaves from nothing. Just while we're here, what would the world be like now if, if this process, I mean, presumably somebody at some point would have would have cracked this. But if we if they hadn't, I mean, the world would look very different. We wouldn't be doing this to start with. The world would look very different. How would it look different? I mean, that's an interesting sort of speculative thing. We wouldn't, I mean, what's the population of the Earth now? Like nine, are we up to nine billion? Is it nine billion? I can't remember now. Yeah, that's right. You know, feeding, yeah. feeding nine billion people would have been impossible without it. Certainly not the way we eat today. Like, n not with large-scale meat production. You no. know, it, it gets tricky sort of saying only half the number of people could exist on, on Earth because there is so much kind of slack in the system of food production right now because we have this limitless nitrogen, this limitless yeah. fertilizer. And so we get to, you know, wasteland in a way. Growing in the United States, growing maize or corn to mm -hmm. feed into ethanol plants to you know, put into cars. There's a lot of waste in the system. But yeah. still, that much said, yeah, I mean, without this limitless nitrogen, we would have to be so much more kind of economical in the use mm. of this precious resource. That's 1909. Was he instantly hailed as a genius? Did he take the credit? I know he won the Nobel Prize. But then we always talk about the, the Haber-Bosch process. I wonder if you could tell us about the Bosch half of the little equation. The Bosch half of this is super important. <laughs> so Carl <laughs> Bosch was a young engineer at BASF, Haber's industrial partner. So Haber did the small-scale experiment showing that this was possible. Mm -hmm. Carl Bosch was the one who looked at that and said, yes, 
this is something we can do at a big scale, and I'm going to devote right. enormous resources to building factories to make it happen. Yeah. Um, he was the one who implemented it on an industrial scale and took it way beyond what Haber ever could have. Mm. Um, he's an interesting character, Karl Bosch. Um, but at your initial question, was Haber instantly hailed? Yes, he was. This got a lot of attention immediately, and it really made Haber's career. How, I mean, how difficult were those experiments? Because I know in order to do it, you need, as well as a catalyst like osmium, you need a lot of heat, you need a lot of pressure. You know, you talked about those early drops coming out. What kind of, what would the apparatus have, have looked like? Well, there are pictures of it, and there's actually a model of it on exhibit in a museum, I believe, in Munich. Um, it's basically a pump and a metal chamber. Um, it was difficult to do, but certainly not impossible. Haber was lucky in a way. I mean, German academics kind of had the reputation a little bit for being sort of ivy, uh, ivory tower types. Haber was not. He he liked sort of the engineering side of and the practical side of scientific research. And he was fortunate to have an associate who was an engineer in his lab who was very, very highly skilled at building these things. But that much said, if if people had known that it would work, people certainly would have been, you know, could have built this kind of thing in a minute. But it did take a very specially oriented scientific laboratory at that time, a more sort of engineering-oriented lab to just do it. And he won the Nobel Prize. Was it that year he won the, he won the prize? Well, no, he won the Nobel Prize only after the First World War, which is interesting. Ah, we're approaching the First World War now. We're in 1909. The war is to come. So just maybe you could just take us into that period post this great discovery. Yeah, what happens then... So after this moment of discovery, this moment of success and triumph in the race to fix nitrogen, Haber becomes famous. Uh, he becomes, he suddenly sort of vaults, you know, from a pretty low-ranking regional kind of, you know, scientific figure to a national scientific figure. Mm -hmm. And just a few years later, I think two years after this triumph, in 1911, he gets invited to move to Berlin, center of the, you know, German society and science and politics. Yeah, the cultural to world. To set up a new institute, a Kaiser Wilhelm Institute for electro, uh, Electrophysics, um, or physical chemistry, actually. Mm. A, the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute for Physical Chemistry. Um, so he moves to Berlin in 1911, starts circulating in a whole different milieu. Um, is part of the, kind of the German elite, scientifically, politically. Really, he's in his element. This is what he felt like he was destined to be, kind of a leading member of German society. And then the war comes, and he throws himself into support for the German war effort. Which gets us into murky areas of, of chemical warfare. One of the things, of course, we think about the German trenches, we think... Gas, gas, quick boys, a fumbling of ecstasy and, and mustard gas and those images. He was responsible for creating that, wasn't he? This idea of using gas as a, as a weapon. Was he responsible for creating it? Yes, in large part. So the war starts and 
Haber immediately volunteers actually to help. He happens to be present at an experiment where people kind of are playing around with poison gas as a weapon. So the idea was there before he got involved, but he saw that and thought, this is something that I can contribute. And he sort of grabbed the idea and he sort of ran with it and really pushed it. He converted his institute, actually, into sort of a wartime institute for research into the use of gases as weapons. Mm -hmm. And he got very involved in military planning, basically sort of drove the development of chlorine gas as the first kind of explicit use of poison gases on the battlefield. Professor Susanna Lipscomb. And on not just the Tudors from History Hit, my guests and I run through the full gamut of human emotion and experience. From the heartbreak of the Virgin Queen, Elizabeth not being able to marry arguably the only man in the world she ever really wanted to marry, may have, for that reason, not married anyone else. To a prenatal battle of the sexes. A male and a female seed meet in the womb at conception, and whichever one is stronger determines the sex of the unborn child. From Lady Jane Grey facing her executioner. You can't help but feel just the utmost sympathy for this young girl. To why the Laughing Cavalier is, well, laughing. He strikes me as someone who goes off on a sort of swaggering booze up. Subscribe now to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian-developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So we know how destructive and terrible this stuff was to the human body. What was the effect of it in the war? Day one, suddenly this new weapon is released for the first time. Well, in that moment when it was first used, it induced panic. On the, on the part of the French, French-Algerian troops who were exposed to it. And their defensive lines kind of collapsed in chaos, and the Germans did advance through that territory. So it was seen, at least Haber saw it, as this big success that he thought they should have taken better advantage of. The thing is, that success is often not easily, and in a military sense, I think a lot of people have looked back at the use of chemical weapons 
and come to the conclusion that they were not hugely successful in achieving their ends. So there's a lot of debate over, yes, they caused a lot of suffering. They caused a lot of chaos. They caused enormous amount of sort of military concern. But were they effective weapons? I think that's one of the reasons why I think it was possible to ban them was the militaries of the world <laughs> were not super excited about them. I mean, were they, they weren't banned ever in Harbour's lifetime, though, were they? they? They must have been banned after. I'm just wondering like, what, he would have, what he thought or would have thought of that, given his whole, this whole idea of like, how on earth can you say it's okay to, to blow someone up with a steel projectiles, but not okay to kill people this way? How do you make that moral justification? He certainly never supported a ban on chemical weapons. I'm guessing now. But I mm. think he thought that that was simply not possible, that technological innovations can't be banned. Because if they work, if they are effective, someone will decide to use them. I don't think he, he was not somebody who believed, I think he believed in inevitable technological forces, um, that they would, if things could be done and if they worked, they would be done. Mm. I want to talk about the kind of the moral implications of that and where he and where he stood on that. But I'm just I'm looking at a cartoon actually. It's um, actually before you go, maybe you could give us a little description of just the effects that chlorine gas would have on the human body. I mean, it's pretty it's pretty grisly. Yeah, it is pretty grisly. I'm not a doctor and I haven't <laughs> looked into it. But basically, if you <laughs> breathe it, you get this kind of yeah, foaming inside your lungs and you just destroys your lungs. There's an amazing cartoon I'm looking at from a another German Jewish chemist. It's a sort of black and white cartoon of a soldier in a trench with a, with a tank. I don't know if you can see it. And, there's, and behind him, there's a, there's a dragon that's breathing this fire or breathing, breathing this gas onto the, um, onto the approaching shoulders. It's a really, really, soldiers, it's a really creepy cartoon. He didn't have a problem with it, did he? He didn't, he, I mean, nowadays we think about chemical warfare and, even, you know, crikey, even... In Ukraine and Russia, we have these red lines, a suit, you know, chemical, absolutely not. And his, well, it seemed to be his argument was, well, it can't be worse than a steel projectile coming through <laughs> at you and blowing your leg off. And like, what's the difference if, if this, is, this is simply an evolution, an, right. a, a knight with a sword, and then you have project, projectiles frying from munitions, what's the difference between, you know you know, chemical weapons. Right. That was absolutely his point of view. He was saying there's no moral distinction between different methods of killing. He had a very sort of technocratic approach to it. And war, you know, he would talk about it not in, you know, sort of terms of horror and devastation, but almost as a, as a technical kind of project. And the way he talked about it is, you know, like war has its own, it's almost like a physical process that operates according to its own laws. And innovation will happen. And you simply have to be at the leading edge of innovation in order to succeed. That really was, it was a very sort of technocratic approach that he took to the issue. It's really, it's interesting, because I, I think of someone like Oppenheimer, you know, Oppenheimer's famous speech after the dropping of bombs I've become the I can't remember how it goes now but you know this but it's all it's tinged with regret that this Pandora's box has been opened but, but we don't seem to have that with 
harbor and, and chemical weapons. He's just like, well, it's just this is this is how it is, and it's an, it's an interesting moral question. If you're going to kill people, why is it morally worse to kill people using this method or that method? Oppenheimer still did it, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I am a destroyer of worlds. I don't know if pangs of conscience matter in the end, do they? I just wondered if he'd ever had that. Had he ever written down that he'd had, no, you know, conscious? No. I mean, I want to just just touch on his personal life very briefly. Did we get a sense of of his character, about what he was like as a as a person? As a person, yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about his because I know he was married three times. Was twice, uh, twice, yeah, uh, married twice. His uh, okay. So, as a person, I feel like you know him, so you, you could well. So I've spent. Hours, you know, just paging through the surviving documents mm. that exist of his writings. You get a very, and, and also of memories that were collected after his death, long after his death, honestly, by a former associate of him. And you get a picture of him. It's a very interesting personality, sort of in public and with his coworkers. He comes across as energetic, enthusiastic. He like loves to be the center of attention, the life of the party, would sort of walk into a room and be immediately sort of the big presence in the room. Mm. He was generous toward colleagues. He'd like to help them out. But there's an interesting phrase about that, and I don't remember the exact phrase, but it was like one of his associates, a woman who worked with him in writing about him, said he'd love to be basically your friend and God at the same time. Like he'd love to help you out as kind of the patron. At the same time, there's two other sides to him. There's the side that basically would periodically crack, you know, and would sort of slide into kind of almost depression and would go visit sanatoriums to basically repair his nerves. He had sort of this fragile nervous system. And so in public, he would he would go on stage and be this conquering hero. And then he would sort of retreat and need months of recuperation. So there was that. And then there's a third side, and this is what comes through, particularly from through the story of his first wife, Clara. I mean, he was a patriarch, and he was selfish, particularly with Clara and in a different way with his second wife. He was not a very good husband. Clara suffered, you know, in that marriage. And in her writing, she sort of says, and I'm sure I'm to blame too by virtue of my personality. I mean, she didn't have the strength of will to stand up to him. And he dominated and he had to be sort of the one in control. I mean, she died by suicide in the immediate aftermath of the first use of chemical weapons on the battlefield. So this was in April of 1915. And the, the first use of chlorine gas on the battlefield and Haber is there and he's sort of supervising the release of the gas and he sees it was an immediate success and he's very proud of it and feels like the German army should have taken better advantage and pursued the offensive. Soon after, weeks, just a couple of weeks after, he came back for a bit of home leave. Short, it was just a short home leave. And in that time... Clara kills herself. The story is she took his service weapon and shot herself. 
And within days, Fritz Haber leaves again for the front. There are some things that he wrote, sort of cryptic things that seem to indicate that he was haunted by mm. it, but he never really spoke about it. You know, and his best friend, uh, Richard Wilstatter, writing about it basically said, talking about Haber's decision to sort of basically go back straight into the war effort, says mm. he was a man of duty. Like he saw mm. it as his duty to kind of return to the front, you know, and anything that happened yeah. with Clara was somehow s subordinate to that. You know, home life was subordinate to sort of this yeah. mission that he had to accomplish. That You said that sort of godlike quality that he saw in himself, perhaps. Do you think that, that came from the fact that he'd had all that recognition for, for doing something so fundamental in, in saving humanity, <laughs> bread from air, a sort of messiah complex? It's possible. It's also possible that it was just his personality. But there was certainly never any, like, sort of later on in life, never any, never any kind of regrets about just the, the horrors of chemical warfare. Because, you know, again, in the Second World War as well, I mean, he was responsible, you know, for Cyclone B. Well, he died long before the Second World War came. Yeah, but you think about chemical weapons later on in the Second World War and now. And yeah, this question of regret, you know, he never, as far as I know, he never sort of said... What I did in the, in the Great War, no, that's not what the Germans called it. What I did in that world war was wrong. He never said that. And he would always kind of defend the rationality of, you know, work on chemical weapons and say that it was no different than the work on any other weapons. On the other hand, we're getting ahead of our story a little bit, but in the 1930s, as he's kind of declining in health and as he's getting older and he's sensing the kind of the rise of anti-Semitism mm. uh, in Germany and the rise of the Nazis. There are these cryptic things in his writings about sort of the, he did say at one point that he's kind of tormented by a sense of having made grave failures in life or grave mm. mistakes. What those mistakes were, though, he didn't say. So I don't know. What do you sort of make of his career? As a scientist, do you kind of do you see him as as a a great inventor? Do you see him as someone who's just deeply troubled? Do you see him as a an evil genius? I don't see him as an evil genius. I see him as a tragic figure whose life was kind of dominated by ambition that was ultimately mm. kind of short sighted. He couldn't kind of step back and say, "I'm not going to pursue this kind of success." He was just going to serve the causes you know, that dominated his life, the cause of the German state, the German nation, and also mm. progress in technology and science. He was going to throw himself into that no matter what. Mm. And he wasn't going to sort of step back and say, yeah, but to what end exactly? Um, That's interesting, he, yeah. He was unlike Einstein, you know, in his kind of total commitment to Germany. They knew each other, didn't they, Haber and Einstein? Oh, they knew each other very well. <laughs> they were very close friends. You know, when Einstein periodically, you know, had nowhere to sleep, he would end up at Haber's house, you know, when he is in the course of his various marital difficulties. I mean, Haber actually played a key role in bringing Einstein to Berlin. Uh, he went and recruited Einstein. He felt like Einstein was kind of the jewel of German scientific society. He was mm. kind of in awe 
of Einstein. Yeah, they had this kind of this weirdly symbiotic relationship where Haber was kind of the mover and shaker institutionally, and Einstein was the sardonic, cynical, scientific genius. Hmm. And they were both Jewish, and they shared a real friendship, even though Einstein hmm. privately wrote very critical things about Haber's style you know, and his, um, and his ambition and his mm -hmm. kind of desire to be kind of part of upper class or elite yeah. German society. There are some lessons here in terms of the technology, isn't there? This idea, we see, we see it so often that n new groundbreaking technologies come along that give so much and yet they're filled with danger and peril. And, and I think of Elon Musk and I think of people like that and, 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 the, and the advent of things like AI and stuff that promises to revolutionize so much. And yet, on the other hand, it promises to destroy us all. I don't know that that quotation I mentioned at the beginning that he said about, you know, technology that that important is like fire in the hands of children. Right. But for most of his life, he was kind of the the prophet of the technological solution. Mm. Right. Um, and maybe at the very end of his life, he started to question that because he had lost control, you know, and he at the very end of his life, he became an outcast. Uh, he kind of went from the outsider, kind of climbing his way into the very heart of German society to becoming the outcast at the end of his life when the Nazis took over. Just tell us a little bit about that. What, why, why did that happen? Haber ran this institute uh, in Berlin, the Kaiser, one of the Kaiser Wilhelm Institutes. But in 1933, the Nazis took power. And one of their very first uh, decrees was that Jews could no longer be employees in the German civil service. And this institute was part of the German state. They made an exception for veterans of World War I, so Haber technically didn't have to quit, but he would have had to get rid of all his Jewish employees, mm. and he refused to do that. And so he resigned. Um, he also was under attack as a, as a prominent Jew. And so he, you know, for the remaining, this is 1933, early 1933, uh, when he resigned. And for the rest, what remained of his life, which was not long, he spent a lot of it trying to sort of figure out, where can I live? Getting older at this point, and his health was failing, and he was irrationally preoccupied with how can I hold on to my money how can I get it out of Germany? Where can I go? Where can I live? Can I live in England? He tried that. He didn't find it congenial. Should I even, should I emigrate to Palestine? He, that was, he was corresponding with uh, Chaim Weizmann, the Zionist leader from time to time. He basically became a nomad in January of 1934. So less than a year after he resigned, he was on his way to Switzerland for some rest and relaxation when his heart failed uh, in a hotel room in Basel, Switzerland. And that's where he died. It's an amazing story. It's an amazing story, not just because of the, the extraordinary accomplishments and the extraordinary tragedies of sort of what he was responsible for, but it, it's full of moral dilemmas and questions which are not easy to answer um, and not, you know, not easy to, 
to, to sort of sum up in, a, in an easy way. It's complex. <laughs> it is. Yeah, people are endlessly fascinated by, by Fritz Haber, but, but he's also not heroic. Mm. You know, he's this tragic figure. And so I think he sort of flits into people's consciousness and then, but people don't kind of hold on to him. He's kind of this uncomfortable mm. figure. Yeah, yeah, You yeah, can't exactly. really sort of embrace <laughs> Fritz Haber. No. Who, who is Lutz Haber, by the way? Lutz uh, was the son from his second marriage. So Fritz and Clara, his first wife, Clara Imarbach, yeah. uh, they, had, they had one child, Hermann, a son. He committed suicide as well, as I recall. I should check that. He escaped from Germany with great difficulty during the Second World War, found his way to New York, uh, had a difficult life, and, and I'm pretty sure committed suicide. Mm. Um, or killed himself or died by suicide. And what are the words we use these days? So then Fritz Haber married again in the 20s, and that marriage produced two children before they got divorced, uh, and Lutz and, and Eva. The, the reason I mentioned it was because I, was, I came across his name, and there's this few lines, little quotation that he wrote, which I just really, really like. I'm going to read it. He wrote this relatively recently, actually, in Bath in the UK in 1998. Enjoy the gaieties of life and its serious sides as well. Nothing alive has a single cause. It's always many-sided. <laughs> I just really like that. It just sort of st- just stuck in my mind as I was rereading this story. That's interesting. I mean, how did you come across that? Is that the same Lutz Haber who, who wrote the history of chemical warfare in World War I? Correct. <laughs> okay. I, I found it in a paper, actually, in an academic paper. It was just interesting. It's, it kind of seemed to sum up this story very well. At the time I was writing my book, he was, I believe, alive but suffering from Alzheimer's and not reachable. I did speak with and meet with Eva, the surviving daughter. Mm-hmm. I would have loved to talk to Lutz Haber because mm-hmm. just the, the fact that he would spend the time to, to write that history... It's almost like he was somehow trying to figure out how to come to terms with his ancestry. Or yeah, with his, exactly. Exactly. With his family legacy. Yes. It's fascinating. It's really interesting. Hey, Dan, listen, thank you so much for, for stopping by and just and sharing your knowledge on this. It, it's such a it, it's a really fascinating story. And it, it's um, it's been a great pleasure to hear your thoughts and hear your your words of wisdom. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. I enjoyed it. So there we go. Evil Inventors episode number one, Fritz Haber. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Hope it was interesting. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for your company as ever. Don't forget, if you are enjoying the show, uh, hit like, hit subscribe, download all the other episodes, tell your friends, tell your family. We're going to be doing some more Evil Inventor episodes coming up. So stay tuned. And don't forget, if you've got a suggestion for a topic, Uh, for patented that you'd like us to cover an idea a story something that's interesting to you you can email us at patented at historyhit.com we look forward to hearing from you as ever i'll see you next time hold up 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes, or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code Patented at the checkout, you get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.